Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Once again, we thank you for this beautiful day you've given to us. Thank you for all the kids who are here. We pray that they have a blessed time with Aunt Pat and uh, with Aunt Sue uh, in the toddler room. Uh, We pray that uh, they learn more about you during this time as well. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it never changes. Our culture will constantly change. Things have changed so much just in the past five to ten years. But your word never changes. Your truth never changes. Who you are never changes. We thank you for that that, uh, truth that we can rest in. You are our hope, you are our savior, and you are our king. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are certain songs by music artists who become so popular that the artist who sang them is only really known for that one song, right? What are those called? One-hit wonders, right? And, but they, they're so lucrative, these songs are so lucrative that these artists make enough to retire on just from that one song. Here are a few from a couple of lists, including the top one-hit wonder artist net worths. You may or may not recognize these, but the first one is Bobby McFerrin, who still has a net worth of $4 million from his one-hit wonder song, Don't Worry, Be Happy, right? Way back in 1988. Sinead O'Connor's 1990 one-hit wonder, Nothing Compares to You, earned her a $6 million net worth. Now, here's where the numbers just get crazy. Vanilla Ice's one-hit wonder, Ice Ice Baby, also released in 1990, still earns him $12 million in net worth. Billy Ray Cyrus, who is probably only known to anyone under the age of 30 as Miley Cyrus's dad, still has a net worth of $20 million, thanks for the most part to his 1992 one-hit wonder, Achy Breaky Heart. Okay, I heard somebody say it. <laughs> and who can forget Korean artist Psy's social media-driven one-hit wonder, Gangnam Style, which was released in 2013 and earned him a net worth of $25 million. But the one-hit wonder that still blows all other one-hit wonders out of the water, strangely enough, is the Norwegian band Aha's song released in 1985, Take On Me, which has earned its lead singer a whopping $60 million today just for that one song. It's probably because he can get that really high octave. That's why he gets paid so much. Now everyone has that song stuck in their heads. You're welcome for that. Even though all of these artists ended up producing other songs and albums, when we think of these artists, we really only think of them being connected to that one song, that one hit wonder. And that's it. And in our passage this morning, uh, when the Apostle John refers to Jesus as the one, it's not just one-dimensional, like being known for a one-hit wonder. Jesus is the one in everything, everything about this world, everything about God's relationship to this world, and everything about us. What does this understanding mean for our everyday lives, and how should it change the way we look at this life and next? That's what we're going to find out today. If you remember from last week, the Apostle John had wrapped up the first part of his gospel known as the prologue, which described this deity known as the Word, the Light, and the God who became human and made a home among humanity. 
Next, John had the task of directly connecting this deity with Jesus of Nazareth to everyone who would read his book, the Gentiles from Greek and Roman pagan background and his fellow Jewish community. The fastest way the Apostle John had to connect this deity with Jesus of Nazareth was through John the Baptist, who we discussed last week was well known and respected in the ancient Mediterranean world as a whole. In this way, the Apostle John introduced two pieces of evidence we talked about last week, which was the minimum witness requirements in a Jewish court of law. Exhibit A was John the Baptist's testimony, which logically and seamlessly flowed into exhibits B and C, both of which were the scriptural testimony of the Messiah. The Apostle John used both of these pieces of evidence to lay out how Jesus of Nazareth was indeed one and the same as this deity he had been describing in the whole first part of his gospel. Like I mentioned last week, even though the Apostle John only needed two testimonies to prove his case, to leave no doubt whatsoever as to the validity of his case that Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was God in human flesh and the Jewish Messiah, John ends up presenting eight pieces of evidence by the time he's done writing this book. He's already presented two, and today the third will be presented. To follow up with what we talked about last week, John the Baptist says to the priests sent by the Pharisees demanding to know why he thought he had the right to be baptizing people, listen, you're right, I am a nobody. I'm not claiming to be anyone other than a voice calling out in the wilderness for people to repent and turn back to God. Your problem is not with me, but the one coming after me. And what's worse for you, as who are supposed to be the highly religious and spiritual authorities, is that he's already here among you, and you have no clue who it is. We pick back up with what John the Baptist's reply is to these priests this morning in verses 27 through 28. So, if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 1. We're going to start with verses 27 through 28. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn there or look it up in your favorite smartphone app. Um, it's, uh, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in the New Testament. Look it up in the table of contents or ask a neighbor. There's no shame in that. So we're going to start with verses 27 through 28, and we read, It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. Like previously mentioned, this piggybacks on what John the Baptist has already said. When the priests sent by the Pharisees antagonistically demand to know why John the Baptist thought he had the right to baptize people when it had only been pagan Gentiles who were converting to Judaism who were baptized up to that point. And he wasn't a priest and he wasn't a Pharisee or any of the figures prophesied in the Old Testament. John replies with just an amazing response. He doesn't even attempt to defend himself. He makes no attempt to de defend himself. He replies completely in line with what his whole ministry has been. 
Instead, he merely replies that he's baptizing people not because of any right he had or anything about who he was, but he's only doing it in anticipation of who was coming after him. In fact, John the Baptist was relinquishing any personal pride or self-given right to be baptizing people even more by describing the one as one he wasn't even worthy enough to remove the sandals from the feet of. Back, in this, back at this point in history and culture, it was the job of the household servant to bend down and take off the head of the household or the guest's sandals in order to wash their feet. John the Baptist is acknowledging how little religious right or title he himself had in describing just how humble his calling was, but explaining that he was even lower in human societal standards than a household servant when it came to the one. In verse 28, we have a location given by the Apostle John, Bethany beyond the river beyond the Jordan River. According to biblical scholarship, this is not the same location as the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, but a different location to the east of the Jordan River. Interestingly enough, the church father, Origen, commented only about 120 years after John wrote this, that this location was already unknown to anyone by that point, 120 years after John wrote this gospel. Now, we get to John the Baptist's overt and undeniable statements that directly connect Jesus of Nazareth as one and the same as this eternal God the Apostle John's already blatantly described. In verses 29 through 31, we read, The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. There is so much wrapped up in just these few statements. There are several sacrifices that Israel was expected to make in following the Mosaic law. There was the daily offerings that the priests made in the temple, which normally included lambs. Then there was the once-a-year atonement sacrifice that was made to cover the sins of Israel for the preceding year. Lastly, there was the lamb sacrifice that was made during the Feast of Passover. So as agreed upon by biblical scholarship, John the Baptist is most likely referring to all of these when he's saying the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. While the Passover sacrifice was not intended to atone for sin, John's combining the concept behind the Passover lamb with the Day of Atonement by saying the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He's combining the two images. And notice that he doesn't say this sin of Israel. He doesn't say the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of Israel. What does he say? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the entire world. Before, the atonement sacrifice only covered the sins of Israel, not the entire world. The biggest difference between Jesus and the Passover slash atonement sacrifice is twofold. While the yearly atonement sacrifice was only meant to cover the sins of Israel, Jesus would take care of the sins of the entire world. 
Remember, this fits right in line with the Apostle John's intention that his book be a missionary-minded book to describe who Jesus is to as many people from as many different backgrounds as possible. In short, the world, right? And secondly, the yearly atonement sacrifice was only meant to be able to cover Israel's sins, not completely take them away. There's a big difference. I could go outside of the parking lot, throw some camouflaging material over your car and say, whoa, where did your car go? It's quite another thing for me to go and steal it and it to be completely removed from the parking lot. As with everything else in the Mosaic Law, the yearly atonement sacrifice was always meant to be incomplete, a finger pointing to when the theological concept would be completely fulfilled this time with a sacrifice that would not just cover sin, but completely remove it, completely take it away. Furthermore, what John the Baptist is really getting at by outright connecting this one person of sacrifice to an Old Testament messianic passage that a lot of Jewish people wanted to forget existed was this. In Isaiah 53, the prophet describes a person that would sacrifice himself to bear others' sin on their behalf as an atonement sacrifice. In Messianic Judaism or Biblical Christianity, this person in this chapter, Isaiah 53, is known simply as the suffering servant. Maybe you've heard that term before. What was the term used to describe this suffering servant? What was the way that, that described the suffering servant? Well, it's this. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb, here's what John the Baptist is really getting at, to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. Just as one cannot deny that this passage is in the Jewish scriptures, one cannot deny that this is exactly what John the Baptist had in his mind and was declaring when he looked at Jesus and said openly, look, this is the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. That's the connection to John's Jewish readers. Now to his Gentile readers. Remember, the whole belief systems of Greek and Roman religion could not even begin to conceive of a deity wanting to bother himself with disgusting humanity. They completely distanced themselves from the human world and could only be appeased through sacrifices. Now, John is introducing to them a brand new concept. Not only is the God he's describing a God who loves humanity so much that he adds humanity to his deity in order to come dwell with them, but now John is revealing that the whole purpose of this God-man's ministry was to not be sacrificed to by humans, but to be the sacrifice for humans. And not just for one group of humans, but for the entire world, regardless of who you are. The Apostle John recording this statement in connection with Jesus is huge. 
The very first statement that is made at the revelation of Jesus being the same deity as described in verses 1 through 18 is that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah's suffering servant and he will be the atonement sacrifice for the sins of not only his people but for the entire world. To leave no doubt, John the Baptist then makes that clear in verse 30. As anyone who has already read Luke's gospel, which was most likely written before the destruction of Jerusalem, did Jesus have his human existence begin before John the Baptist's? No. You're the only one brave enough to answer, and you're right. No. Technically, John the Baptist was about six months older than Jesus, humanly speaking. So what does the Apostle John mean here by recording these words from John the Baptist? That he existed before I did. That Jesus, the suffering servant, is indeed the same deity who has also existed and thus existed, who has always existed and thus existed before John the Baptist that he recorded in the first part of the book. The Apostle John is confirming that right here. Everything about this revelation of Jesus of Nazareth being God, the Messiah, and the atonement sacrifice for the world was done specifically and on purpose. John the Baptist references this in verse 31. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. See, there's a purposeful order here. We don't know anything about the relationship between John the Baptist and his younger cousin, Jesus, other than during that entire time, from first meeting his young kids up to this point, John the Baptist did not know that Jesus was all of this or any of this. We'll find out in verse 33 that God the Father had hidden it from John all the way up until that specific, specific point when he made his declaration about Jesus being the Lamb of God. Like I said, there was a purpose for that. God wanted everything to happen in a specific order. If John had known that his, that his little cousin was God and the Messiah, who wouldn't have been able to keep his mouth shut? Little kid John, right? <laughs> Anybody who has young kids, you tell them one thing, then all of a sudden everybody knows about it, right? Okay. It would have been making its rounds during all of Jesus' childhood and growing up years. And when it made its rounds, as these things often do, bits and pieces, most likely distorted and convoluted, would have been what was passed around, that Jesus was the Messiah. And someone in authority had already tried killing Jesus as the king when he was a baby. No, in order for anyone to put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, that had to stay secret. That had to stay hidden for the most part until it was God's timing for it to be revealed. The first thing that needed to happen in the order of revelation to humanity as a whole was the connection to John's baptism. That's why he says that in verse 31. Remember, when we covered verses 6 through 8, when the apostle John first introduces John the Baptist, the first step towards recognizing Jesus as Savior is what? It's repentance. 
That's the very first step towards recognizing Jesus as Savior, repentance. In order to recognize that you need a Savior from your sin, you first need to come to the conclusion that you're a sinner whose sin separates you from God, and there's nothing, no amount of good works, no general assumption that you're somehow good enough if you've never killed anyone, nothing you can do about it. That's what John the Baptist was calling people to see in their own lives before the Savior was to be revealed. People first had to see that they had a sin problem that needed to be repented of before the Savior from that sin could be revealed, or else no one would see any point or need for Jesus. That's why John the Baptist says in verse 31, so that there would be no mistake as to what this Lamb of God's purpose was, I first came around baptizing with the water of repentance from sin. It's the exact same for us today. You may be sitting here watching online later and you believe in Jesus, that he died and rose again, but you've never come to the place in your life where you openly believe and admit that your sinfulness separates you from God. If you've just believed that your entire life, that if you've just believed your entire life that your perceived inherent goodness is good enough to get you into heaven, you need to realize that that is a lie straight from the enemy of your soul. God's word is very plain that no one is good enough to measure up to what God determines is righteous. All any of us can do is recognize that we will never be good enough to measure up to what God says is good enough. We all need to come to a place where we recognize that we're a sinner and that our sin separates us from God and his heaven. Once we admit that to God in prayer and repent or turn away from that life directed by sin, then and only then can we take Jesus as our savior from that sin, having paid our sin death debt on our behalf. Jesus, as the substitute sacrifice on our behalf to take our sins upon himself, to die and rise again for our sins, is our only hope. What the Apostle John next describes in verses 32 through 34 is what the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, describe as John's baptism of Jesus, verses 32 through 34. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. What did John's baptism represent? Repentance and turning away from sin. Did Jesus, as God and therefore sinless, have anything at age 30 to repent of? No. So why did Jesus have John baptize him? Two reasons. Number one, as the fulfillment of the Mosaic law, and in order to have followed the Mosaic law perfectly, Jesus needed to fulfill the meaning of what baptism had been in the Mosaic law. In the Jewish law, cleansing with water was required after certain events that happened in a person's life in order to be reinstated to the religious community. 
Eventually, this idea of cleansing with water took on an additional spiritual meaning with the prophet Ezekiel using it as an illustration of God cleansing Israel from her sin. John the Baptist was the transitional figure in taking this concept of spiritual cleansing and making it a one-time event in one's life in repentance of a lifetime of sin. So the next logical step would be for Jesus to affirm this practice of one-time baptism in connection with repentance as fulfillment of the Jewish law of what the meaning of water cleansing was always supposed to be. Jesus was also identifying himself with this baptism and the messianic kingdom that went with it. This then gave Jesus the reason for commanding his disciples to baptize any followers who came after him with baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The second reason goes hand in hand with the first. If Jesus was going to command it of his followers, he should do it first as the example. He serves as the example for all of his disciples, including us, for the past 2,000 years to also follow. In fact, we just had a baptism service a couple of months ago. And if you have repented of your sin and asked Jesus to be your Savior from that sin and King over the rest of your life, but have not yet been baptized by full immersion, following that decision, come talk to me about the possibility of you being baptized. The Apostle John's focus is not on the event of, of Jesus' baptism itself. In fact, he doesn't even mention it in these verses. But he focuses on what happens during that event. The other three Gospels also record this happening. But when Jesus comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove descended upon Jesus, and God the Father affirmed that Jesus was the second person of the Trinity, the Son, and that everything he was was pleasing to him. Notice again the language that the Apostle John uses here. In connection with the focus of last week's message, this is language you would expect to see, read, or hear in a legal court case. You see words like seen and testified in connection with John the Baptist as a witness. Again, this is the third piece of evidence that the Apostle John gives in confirming Jesus of Nazareth as God and the Messiah. The first was John the Baptist's testimony, which again is referenced in these verses. The second was the Jewish scriptures. And the third is God the Father himself. Boy, think of a, an awesome eyewitness to bring up to the stand here. God the Father himself. John the Baptist divulges that God the Father, the same God that the Jewish people had worshipped ever since God called their forefather Abraham to faith in him, reveals that Jesus of Nazareth is the one through whom people would receive the Holy Spirit. Now, why is this important? In the Old Testament, the giving of the Holy Spirit was given temporarily. And it was understood that God was the only one who gave it and took the power of the Holy Spirit away. In fact, what's the very first evidence we have of the Holy Spirit being of God and only directed by God? The very second verse in the entire Bible. And the earth was formless and desolate emptiness and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. 
So by God the Father making this statement, he himself is also revealing that Jesus of Nazareth is God, the one who is able to and has the authority to give the Holy Spirit. That's the Apostle John's plain third piece of evidence to Jesus' deity. So anyone who claims that Jesus never claims to be God in the Bible, first of all, is just plain wrong, and second of all, is blatantly ignoring the fact that God the Father also declares Jesus as God. In addition, what is being described here is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Just as John's baptism was a one-time-only event to represent a lifelong repentance from sin, Jesus' giving of the Holy Spirit will also be a one-time-only event, immediately following one's admittance of sinfulness, acceptance of Jesus as the Savior from that sin, and commitment to Jesus as the King over the rest of their lives. From that point on, we are given the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, who makes a home within us. He starts going to work on our lives immediately, freeing us from the effects of sin, breaking the chains of addiction, redeeming our pasts and past trauma, leading us to the most, most wise decisions, showing us where we're still harboring sin to repent of, freeing us from the power of fear, anxiety, and depression, growing within us the fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, fighting our spiritual battles against the kingdom of darkness for us and transforming the entire way we view life and everything going on in this world. The permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit given to us by Jesus and the Father is truly an immeasurable treasure. Lastly, and again, in keeping with this legal court case language, John the Baptist says in verse 34, this is my eyewitness testimony. The eyewitness testimony of what? The fact that Jesus truly is indeed the Son of God. As pointed out by one biblical scholar, this term, Son of God, specifically in the Gospel of John, is reserved only for Jesus and is roughly synonymous with the understanding of the Messianic King, as, as prophesied to and promised to King David and his bloodline. So, when you see this term, Contrary to different cults that disguise themselves as sects of Christianity that believe and preach that Jesus was created or begotten by God the Father as the Son of God, this understanding simply does not corroborate that unbiblical and false belief. Son of God is a title that also refers to the Davidic everlasting messianic king. That's what the title means. In fact, in a little bit, one of the disciples that Jesus will call to follow him, Nathaniel, makes this direct and obvious connection with this term in Jewish understanding. We read, then Nathaniel exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God, a.k.a. the king of Israel. That's what this title means. Man, I can't think of any better way for the Apostle John to prove Jesus of Nazareth as the prophesied messianic king and God himself. Can you? He has just presented three pieces of evidence, and that's just so far. There's five more to come. 
He's presented the historical and theological evidence of John the Baptist's call to repentance ministry. He's presented the historical and theological evidence of the Jewish scriptures. And now he's presented God himself's affirmation of Jesus as God. Lastly, John the Baptist has wrapped up everything with his eyewitness testimony that Jesus is truly the Son of God or the rightful Messianic King. If John's purpose in writing this book was twofold, to present a perfectly reasonable case for belief in Jesus as God and the Messiah to both the Jewish people and the Gentiles, and to bolster the faith of the church, who at the time he was writing this was facing persecution from every angle possible, he's achieved his purpose. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus as God and the sacrifice for sin on your behalf, the only way to enter heaven when you die and to have God now indwelling you as the Holy Spirit do so right now. And as the church, your faith may need some bolstering. You may be dealing with a very intense personal situation or dilemma right now. I'm going to repeat that again. You may be dealing with a very intense personal situation or dilemma right now. You may be dealing with persecution from loved ones or your workplace for your faith. You may be dealing with a time of weak faith and wrestling with doubt. The same truth is the foundation for peace and hope in every situation we as followers of Jesus will face 2,000 years later. That foundational truth is this. Jesus is God. Jesus is King. And Jesus has given you the Holy Spirit to give you the peace from God that surpasses all human understanding, to give you the staunch and firm standing of hope, to give you strength and power when you have none, to give you God's wisdom when you need it, and to transform you into the likeness of who Jesus is. Nothing, no situation, no persecution, no perpetuating cultural or mainstream lie, and certainly no force of darkness will change that. Lean and rely on that foundational truth, no matter what you're dealing with or what you're facing. Jesus is God. Jesus is King. And no matter how the world goes, that will never change. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this eyewitness testimony of John the Baptist and what you revealed to him as Jesus being God, connecting this Jesus of Nazareth to this deity the Apostle John has been describing in the first 18 verses of his book. Lord, we thank you that we can take that foundational truth into any dilemma we're facing, into any situation we're dealing with. Jesus is God. Jesus is King. I have the Holy Spirit. And we can face whatever this world throws at us. We can do so because we know that you are king over the entire universe and you have your perfect plan, not only for this world, but for our individual lives. And so no matter what happens to us in this life, that will never change. You are still on your throne, you still have your plan, and your plan is still perfect. May we find our rest, our assurance, and our hope in that. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please stand with